baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, and it's time to spend a little bit of time talking about the Atlanta Braves and Major League Baseball. And we've had a lot of fun on social media the last couple of weeks, but probably a little bit more fun this week as we counted down the best trades in Braves history. Not just a countdown, really. We voted down to the finals, and while there was not a lot of intrigue, I think, on what the greatest Braves trade of all time was going to be in the eyes of many, I think it was a lot of fun to go back and relive some of those. And with that in mind... I'm going to have Mark Lemke on the show today to go back through a few of the trades that he lived through with the early 90s Braves, and of course, winning the World Series in 1995, how much one of those trades meant towards that, maybe more than one of those trades if you really think about it, but either way, Mark Lemke was around for one of the best periods in Braves baseball history, and we're going to talk to him about a few of those deals, get his thoughts on it, and his reflections on what those men meant to the Atlanta Braves and the success they had in the decade of the 1990s. Now, that's the good news in this podcast. The not-so-good news is we're going to talk about electronic sign-stealing again. And to help me do that, Bill Rowland has drawn that short straw as we'll dissect what exactly the Boston Red Sox received in the form of punishment for their 2018 sign-stealing allegations. Major League Baseball and Rob Manfred handed down a report. A little bit light in the eyes of most. Bill and I will tackle that once we're done talking about all the good stuff and all these Braves trades as well. Before we get started on the show, I want to remind you, you can subscribe to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. And if you like what you hear, be sure to tell a friend. Those help out the show immensely. Make sure you're following along on social media. You can find the show at From the Diamond underscore on Twitter. I am also on Twitter at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And you can find Bill Rowland on Twitter at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, the show is at From the Diamond. I am at Grant McCauley. And every episode of the show and so much more is available for you at FromTheDiamond.com. So as I mentioned, we've been having a lot of fun on Twitter this week as we've been looking at the greatest trades in Braves history. I sent the tweet out asking for you to make some submissions for that. Got a lot of good ones. We even had one play-in game to decide what the field of 16 was going to be for it. And I'm pretty happy with the way that all of this turned out in terms of these good trades. The interesting thing was that we had a lot of very top-heavy or very powerful number one seeds that were going to be in each of these regions, but let me run through the bracket real quick, recap that, and of course crown our winner before we talk to Mark Lemke about his thoughts on some of these deals. Best Braves trades, you can find these on Twitter, at Grant McCauley. We'll start left to right. We had the Fred McGriff trade of 1993, the Jason Hayward trade of 2014 to the Cardinals, the Otis Nixon trade of 1991, the Mike Devereaux trade beat the Luis Polonia trade, both of those in 1995. Of course, Devereaux was NLCS MVP that year, so I would say that qualifies him to make this list as well. At the bottom of the left-hand side of the bracket, the Shelby Miller trade that brought over Dansby Swanson, Ender Inciarte, and Aaron Blair. That went up against the Edgar Renteria trade with the Boston Red Sox for Andy Marte. 
the Michael Bourne trade of 2011, which was a great deal by Frank Wren to get Bourne for what amounted to a whole bunch of spare parts. And that went up against the Justin Upton trade of 2014, in which he went to the Padres. And the main player that came back and has had success in Atlanta would be Max Fried. On the other side of the bracket, it was the John Smoltz for Doyle Alexander deal of 1987, a heavy favorite, we'll just call it that, as this began. That went up against the Edgar Renteria trade to the Tigers in 2007. Jair Jurgens came back in that deal. The Gary Sheffield trade of 2002 went up against the Chris Chambliss trade of 1979, a little-known trade for a lot of Braves fans, especially the modern-day Braves fans, but a very big deal to bring over a player who was instrumental in the Braves having some success in the early 80s, which a lot of folks may not have realized that Chambliss was in the middle of that and in the middle of the Braves order back then. At the bottom of the right side of the bracket, the Tim Hudson trade of 2004, that one from the Oakland Athletics, Alejandro Pena trade of 1991. I think everybody remembers Pena, but you might not realize that they didn't get him till right before September in 91, and Pena was instrumental in the Braves making it to the World Series that year. Then it's the Marquis Grissom trade, 1995 spring training, right before the season opened. Of course, the strike year, he was brought over for Roberto Kelly, Tony Tarasco, and Esteban Yan, and Grissom was pretty important by the time 1995 was over as he grabbed the last out of the World Series. The Evan Gaddis trade for Mike Fultonevich in 2015 rounded out our field of 16, and that whittled its way down to a Final Four, which was the Fred McGriff trade with the Padres in 93, the Shelby Miller trade with the Diamondbacks in 2015, the John Smoltz trade in 1987, and the Tim Hudson trade in 2004. That went down to the finals where John Smoltz for Doyle Alexander topped Fred McGriff for three minor leaguers with the Padres. 90% of the votes for John Smoltz, not altogether surprising, over 20,000 votes cast in all these polls, and I think we got the result that we might have expected with this one, but it was an awful lot of fun to go back and look at some of these trades, put them in context, and relive some of the more fun deals especially a week after we looked at the worst trades in Braves history as well. So in talking about all these Braves trades and trying to dig through what was the best of all the Braves trades, and we had quite a few contenders, even if there was maybe one clear favorite, I think it's worth going back and looking at some of the trades that were mentioned in this bracket. And to help me do that, I want to bring in a member of those early 90s Braves teams, the team that went from worst to first, and the team that won the World Series in 1995, and my colleague at the Braves Radio Network, he of course is Mark Lemke, Mark, I appreciate your time. Looking forward to chatting with you about, I think, some good memories for Braves fans and, of course, for Braves players, too. You're welcome, Grant, and looking forward to it. Going down a little memory lane here. I'll see how much I can dig up of some of those great deals of the past. All right, well, we're going to dig up a pretty good year for the Braves by anybody's measurement, and that, of course, was 1991. As the Braves went from worst to first, went to the World Series, we're so close to winning it then, but I think it really just set the stage for what was going to be an incredible run. And when you talk about setting the stage for a lineup – I think everybody looks at the leadoff spot and thinks, well, what can we do to energize the starting nine and to get things going? And the Braves made, a, I think, kind of an under-the-radar trade, right? As spring training was breaking, you guys were heading north. Nobody knew what 1991 was going to be. But the Braves sent a catcher in Jimmy Kremers and a minor leaguer up to Montreal. And Otis Nixon and a minor leaguer came back the other way. I know you played a little bit against Otis Nixon prior to him joining the Braves, but once he got there, what exactly did he bring to the Braves lineup in particular that lit a fuse, if you will, for uh, what was going to be a pretty good year for the offense? Well, first of all, Grant, he didn't really get sent down from the north. And in those days, we trained at the same facility with the Montreal Expos. It was sent across the field. That was what, to me, was the most memorable thing of those kind of deals back with the Expos and the Braves. There were a couple made. 
over the first few years I was in the Braves organization, it was so interesting to see a guy one day playing for the Atlanta Braves or the Montreal Expos and get traded to the team and walk across the field literally with his travel bag and all his gear and into the other dugout. Right. It was kind of funny. So I, that's the first thing I remember about that trade. It was late in the spring training, and they just kind of switched sides of the field. And to me, it was, uh, you know, you didn't know what to expect with Otis. You, none of us could have expected what he would bring to the club at the leadoff spot. He uh, was a little bit older, I think, at that time. I don't know how old he was, maybe 28, 29. So he was moving around a couple teams and organizations, wasn't really an everyday player at that time. And I remember maybe the year before, earlier, he was a pinch runner, basically, for the Montreal Expos and stole, like, 50 bases. Yeah. And I think you say to yourself, you know, maybe John Scherholz was thinking, I wonder what this guy could do if we played him every day. And I think that's the opportunity he got in Atlanta that he might not have gotten in Montreal. Yeah, I think it definitely was. If you kind of go back and look through the numbers of Otis Nixon, he'd never had more than 271 at-bats in a major league season, and that was in 1988. And I think he was more or less pressed into duty there. But to your point, he was kind of a pinch runner, fourth outfielder, guy that might platoon, that kind of thing. He was coming off a 50-stolen base year. But when he came over to the Braves, all he did was set an Atlanta record by stealing 72 bases and getting all of that done in 124 games. Now, unfortunately, his season ended a little bit earlier than the Braves did. And, of course, Lonnie Smith stepped in and did an awful lot for the Braves after that. But as you watched Otis Nixon throughout the summer, and he's stealing bases left and right, I mean, this was something that Atlanta had not seen, I mean, very few times, if any, in the history of the Braves club. And clearly, if you steal a record number of bases, it doesn't happen too often. What did those stolen bases and that kind of speed do to set up the top of the lineup for success? Well, I know what it does to you defensively because mm-hmm. playing in the middle of the infield, I played against a lot of guys that can create that kind of havoc and that kind of fear. There's all kinds of things that go on when you got a guy that could run and runs a lot, runs all the time. And uh, for Otis, the thing that I think he surprised everybody was, was he was able to hit both sides of the plate all season long. Mm-hmm. There was really no wall. This was a magical year for Otis and, and obviously for us because – when we came into that spring training, you know, obviously we made some moves. Terry Pendleton, Sid Green, Rafael Belliard, a couple of great great moves. We knew we were going to be an uh, improved team. But at that point, our biggest speed threat was our 30-30 guy in Ron Gant. Yeah. And you don't really think of a guy batting in a power position in the lineup to be your guy that's going to be the catalyst as well. We needed someone at the top of the lineup, and Otis Nixon provided that. And also, he, I, I believe, was that the year, Grant, that he uh, uh, stole six bases against Montreal? It was. Yeah, it was. He gave his old team quite a receipt with that one. <laughs> he did. Yeah, it was an impressive year all around. Obviously, a single-game record of six stolen bases he tied as far as major leagues is concerned. That's not something, again, that you see very often on his way to 72 stolen bases on the season. And as you looked at that 91 team, we knew that some special things were going on. There were some highs and some lows, but that race with the Dodgers will always be something that really stuck with me as a young fan. And even going through when we get ready for a Major League Baseball season now, and you and I are kind of talking about, hey, what's happening in baseball? What's happening in the NL East or any of these races? I don't remember too many that were more exciting than that 91 race. Maybe one we're going to talk about in a few minutes was just as exciting, maybe a little bit more, but... Either way, it was a lot of those moves you mentioned in spring training as the Braves kind of came into their own with the young talent. And then as you went along, obviously injury is going to be a big part of any season. And when Juan Berenguer went down, 
It was a trade for not a journeyman pitcher per se, but not necessarily a big name either. Alejandro Pena came over from the Mets for Tony Castillo. What do you remember about the Alejandro Pena trade, the need at the time, and the job that he did coming in and closing, which was something that he wasn't necessarily known all around the sport for having done that much of? Another under-the-radar, underrated trade, you could say, in the history of Atlanta Braves. And just like Otis, Alejandro Pena, I don't think anybody could have expected what we got. He gave us great performances and then some, and it went on. You know, you try to think, what was your mood at that time? You know, you're saying to yourself, you're coming off a lot of losing seasons, and then you're saying, well, you know, our closer goes down, Juan Berenguer. We're going to pick up a guy to fill that void for a minute. And, you know, it's been a good year, you know, and at least it's a little bit of a turnaround. I don't think anybody could have saw Alejandro Pena coming in, doing the job he did, not only down the stretch, but into the postseason, because I don't think any of us thought at that moment we were going to be able to overtake the mighty Dodgers, even though we had closed the gap, and it was close at that time. You know, you're kind of, as a young player, you're wondering, do we have enough left in the tank? You know, you almost say, I wouldn't mind the season ending right now, because or in a couple of weeks, we're in a great spot, but we got to go up. I don't remember the date of uh, Alejandro's trade. Was it in August? It was. It was an August trade. So you're talking about one that you didn't have a lot of time left, and there's that little cutoff to where if you get him too late, he can't even pitch for you in the postseason. Right. So we still had a month plus of the season to go. So we really needed – we didn't need a Band-Aid. We needed someone to come in there yeah. and not only do the job of uh, Juan Berenguer, but maybe even surpass him. And I think Alejandro did that. And, you know, if people could have foresaw that, Grant, Maybe that trade doesn't go through it. That was after the trade deadline, I believe. It was. It was August 28, 1991 when that trade went down. So just mere days before that September cutoff where the Braves Mm -hmm. did make a trade for Mike Bilecki and Damon Berryhill, but they weren't eligible for postseason in 91. Of course, they would be around in following years. But either way, this Pena thing, as far as timing was concerned, that was pretty much of the essence for John Charles. He pulled off that deal. Pena came over, 140 ERA, 11 saves in his 15 appearances couple of wins as well, was part of that combined no-hitter with Kent Merker and Mark Wohlers. A lot of memories, I think, for Alejandro Pena in a relatively short amount of time, and I think that's kind of a trade that you remember it in the context of what it was that season. It may not be the best trade in Braves history, but it's certainly one that if you're talking about deals, little deals, kind of off-the-radar deals that make a great season possible, I think Alejandro Pena certainly deserved to be one of those ones that made a bracket of the top 16 anyway. And no doubt about it. Alejandro is one of those guys where you don't even pay attention to the radar gun yeah. because to the hitters it's going to appear a lot harder than what that radar gun is going to show you. And for the majority of the time, he was basically using just his fastball. And if I think back to the memories, he was burying it down and away consistently, throwing it by hitters. And then you remember the one pound ball, he picks that perfect time against Andy Van Slyke mm-hmm. in the postseason to break that out and he got in for strike three. Boy, I tell you, Andy Van Slyke was on the opposite end of great memories for Braves fans, not great memories for Andy Van Slyke, whether it was Otis Nixon robbing of that home run in 92, which is something I don't think many Braves fans will ever forget, 
And then, of course, that strikeout by Alejandro Pena, the Sid Bream slide, all of those things. That, it always seemed to be like you guys were having a lot of fun. Andy Van Slyke was not having as much fun. <laughs> and I happened to grow up in the same town as Andy Van Slyke, so it was, um, I was trying to hold him in my emotions and console him as best I could. Yeah, I imagine he, you were not the first person he called when he went home that winter, I would imagine. I haven't heard from him since 1992. Oh, well, there you go. I can't imagine why. <laughs> Something seemed to happen in October of that year. But either way, a couple of great trades, I think, from the 91 season. But let's talk about another great pennant race and another great trade. And this one made it all the way to the finals. And it's going to be tough to top the best trade in Braves history. I think we all knew it going in, what it was going to be, and we'll get to it. But Fred McGriff coming over from the San Diego Padres, it was essentially three minor leaguers heading the other way. But that day was not only known for, hey, the Braves got Fred McGriff, but it was also, hey, the press box caught on fire at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. You were there. What are your memories of the day? I mean, the McGriff trade we'll get to, but... It's not every day you walk in and, hey, our stadium's on fire. It made for some great pictures, I can tell you. Absolutely, it did. You got one. Yeah, and you're not going to see a stadium engulfed in flames, at least that section like that, I hope, never again. Right. And, you know, I'm thinking during that fire, you know, they're going to get it out here pretty quick. We're down there taking bat practice, and it's already hot in Atlanta. But all of a sudden, it started getting really hot. And then we hear an explosion. Everybody runs out to center field. And, you, you know, you're thinking maybe the, the stadium's going to blow yeah. up. You don't know what's going on. I, you know, at that point, no one really knew where it started, what was on fire. Could it catch on more? So my first thought is, wow, we finally get Fred McGriff, and we're not going to play baseball this night. No kidding. And, uh, well, yeah. I mean, and I don't believe we started that game until after nine. And, uh, boy, what an interest Fred McGriff made. I, I believe the broadcasters actually did the game from the stands, from the, from the grandstand, sat down in the seats. I don't think they could use the press box. Yeah, everybody had to kind of scramble around to make it happen. Baseball did happen that night. The Braves came back to beat the St. Louis Cardinals on that night, and that was the first of 51 wins in 68 games after Fred McGriff joined the Braves as Atlanta was – having an okay season, but not living up to the exploits of 91 and 92. You were missing a little something, and first base seemed to be a, a logical spot to add. John Scherholz made that deal happen. Melvin Nieves was the main prospect that went. Also, uh, Vince Moore, who was a minor league outfielder and had a really good season as well, and a minor league pitching prospect. Not really the crown jewels of the San Diego farm system by the time this trade played out, and McGriff was there for parts of four seasons and ended up winning the World Series in 95. But I do have to ask you, just from being on the field night in and night out, you're looking at the San Francisco Giants. They seem to be the team to beat in 1993. And you guys were able to track them down, beat them, and push them right out of October, which had to be a pretty bitter pill to swallow. Well, I'll give you my first thoughts, Grant, when that trade was made. I'm saying, real nice trade, I think a little too late. Right. And we were a lot of games behind the Giants at that time, and you're saying, boy, if this could have happened a month earlier, it might have been great. Well, the reason now, looking back, as you mentioned, the three guys in that trade, Melvin Nevis, Donnie Elliott, and I believe Vince Moore, and you think about the Braves organization at that time was stacked with young players. And I think what took so long was John Charles kept saying, no, you're not getting Ryan Clusco, you're not getting Chipper Jones, right. you're not getting Javier Lopez. And I think that's what took so long. I think San Diego wanted to make the trade, but they were looking for a bigger haul than they got. And I think they finally said, all right, let's make the deal. And they made the deal. And it was in the nick of time, fortunately, although I, you know, at the time I thought it was late. But I'll tell you what, Grant, from the time we got Fred McGriff 
to the time we closed out that season, don't forget, and won by one game against a 103-win team, might have been the best stretch of baseball I've ever been involved in in my whole life. I don't think there's any two ways about it. I mean, looking at success of teams in either league and the years that have happened since then, the years that I've watched baseball as a fan or even worked in baseball at any level, I have not seen a team consistently win the way the Braves did in 93. It just it kind of felt like that team of destiny, and I know that it didn't end up that way in terms of getting to and winning the World Series that year, but just to be able to come from nine games back in late July and run down a 103-win team – I really think, and I'm, I'm sure that this has been stated and is pretty much known, that if baseball was on the fence whatsoever about expanding the playoffs, watching a 104-win team knock off a 103-win team and <laughs> that club going home, that had to be a pretty big reason why those playoffs were going to be expanding beginning in 94 had it not been for the strike. And uh, yeah, that was a perfect example of why you say uh, let's play in the division down the stretch yeah. in September because we had head-to-head matchups with the Giants, they actually controlled their own destiny had they beat us. We had we did what we were supposed to do. We had to go in there. I think we might have lost one of the games. I think we beat them five out of six, six out of seven. I, I have to look back. I really don't remember what it was. But the other thing was it wasn't just satisfying for us. In 91, the Giants helped us beating the Dodgers in, I think, the final game. Yep. And then the Dodgers turned around and returned the favor and helped us beating the Giants, or we would have had a playoff had the Dodgers not won that final game against the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, it was five out of six you guys took down the stretch from late July on. And so having your own destiny and being able to play for it and handle your business yourself is, I think, what every club would like to have the opportunity to do. And no club exemplified that more than the 93 Braves, who were pretty much beating everybody on their way to a third straight National League West title and then, of course, the divisions changed up, and the Braves have been in the NLE since. But the Fred McGriff trade, when you look back on it, I know you said at the time it felt like you know maybe it was a great trade but a little bit too late. But when you think about it in the scope of what it offered the Braves over the next four seasons and winning in 1995, how central to all of that success going forward was Fred McGriff? Oh, he was huge. Just to have him know that he wasn't a rent player for half a season – to be settled in and be on a good team like we had with the Braves. He was definitely the piece we needed in the middle of the lineup. Now, unfortunately, when you add pieces, some go away, and most of us teammates felt bad for a guy like Sid Bream, who was a huge part of the organization getting us to this point, not only on the field but as a leader as well. And looking at what Sid Bream did at that time, too, I mean, he was the highlight of highlights for the Braves in 1992, but Mm -hmm. things can change quickly. And in the business of baseball, getting a Fred McGriff was the, I think, the difference in not just the 93 Braves winning that division, but ultimately the goal that you guys had of winning that World Series. And, you know, I remember that big home run as well, the Grand Slam, I believe, against the Dodgers Mm -hmm. up for Mo Martinez, I believe. Yes, it was. But at that point, we needed just like a, a mega shot somehow. Good baseball was not going to catch the Giants. We had to play extraordinary baseball. And like we've talked about, that was a stretch where it almost had to be near perfect to overtake a team like the Giants. It pretty much was. And I would say that Fred McGriff trade was about as close to perfect as one can be as well. But there's one more trade I want to talk to you about, and it was the trade that was the runaway winner, to no one's surprise, of the best Braves trade poll that I've been running you look back at great trades that helped in the season, like McGriff, like Pena. Uh, Otis Nixon was a great spring training trade. But 
when you think about where the Braves were in 1987, you were living it in the minor leagues, and there was a whole new crop of Braves that were coming through at that time. And Atlanta was not winning at the big league level, and they didn't need a veteran pitcher down the stretch like Doyle Alexander. The Tigers did. And the Tigers ended up winning their division and going to the playoffs and facing the Minnesota Twins. But the right-hander that came the other way for Doyle Alexander that year was a gentleman named John Smoltz, who was not really a well-known prospect in all of baseball circles. And you actually did not play with him, at least I couldn't find, in the minor leagues. Of course, you played with him around, I guess, in spring training. But you guys didn't become teammates until the big league level. But can you give me your earliest memories or impressions of a young John Smoltz and what exactly it was the Braves had on their hands by the time he got to the big leagues? Well, first of all, Grant, that trade versus the rest of them benefited the Braves. Yeah. This one benefited the Braves and the Tigers. I, I don't know what Alexander's record was in Detroit. But, see, this is the one where in baseball terms you say, boy, that was a win-win for both trades. Even the Tigers, although, you know, they wouldn't, no one would know this is a future Hall of Famer you're trading away, would look at that as a win-win situation, and we just got unlucky. We sent a guy that, you know, we knew was a, a great pitcher, but we needed help at the time. So when you get John Smoltz, you're watching the stops, and, you know, it's taken him a little time to figure some things out. But let me tell you something. You could see the stuff and, and how strong he was and athletic. And as I got to know John Smoltz, there isn't a whole lot of things, athletic or skill-wise, that he is unable to do. Yeah, John Smoltz, the ultimate competitor as well. And that's a competitive fire that I think was, in addition to his supreme talent on the mound, the arsenal that he had as a young pitcher were things that drove him to the success in the Hall of Fame career that he had as well. But you bring up an interesting point because yeah, a lot of winning trades has to do with well, we were able to trade this piece, and the guys we got just simply outplayed them, and whoever went to the other team, they just weren't very good or didn't stay for very long. Well, Doyle Alexander, as you mentioned, was a big part of the Tigers winning their division. He went 9-0 and with an ERA well under 2 and was around for another couple of years in Detroit, though not as memorable as the 1987 pennant <laughs> run. John Smoltz, though, by the time all was said and done, you know, he was just a central character to the Braves' success especially in 91 when he was arguably the Braves' worst pitcher for that first half of the year and turned into the Braves' best big-game pitcher by the time he got to Game 7 of the World Series. That's how fast the success seemed to swing back in the corner of John Smoltz, who worked very hard on the field and off to get himself back on track that year. A lot of credit to Leo Mazzoni installing that confidence in John Smoltz and Bobby Cox for keeping him in the rotation. Uh, he had every opportunity to maybe take him out of the rotation with an arm like that. You could always say, well, you can help us in the bullpen. And they kept John in the rotation. I think that was a huge thing confidence-wise that John needed to turn things around. If you look one year after that trade, ask anybody in Detroit, and I bet they say, geez, you know, that didn't cost us much for a guy going 9-0. and yeah. But they didn't realize the motivation, the guy that they traded away who grew up his childhood team, the Detroit Tigers, huge fan of the Tigers, dreamed of pitching in Tiger Stadium. They had no idea what kind of motivation that might put in a guy like John Smoltz. Yeah, I think that it did. I mean, your hometown team drafted you, signed you. That's a great thing. They also traded you away. But I, I think mm -hmm. that the roads that led him to Atlanta, or the road that led him there, the trade in particular that led him there, uh, was kind of working out the way that it was supposed to be, serendipity or whatever you want to call it. Because for John Smoltz, his time in Atlanta was certainly memorable. 200 wins, 150 saves, 3,000 strikeouts, a trip to Cooperstown as well. And uh, talking about John Smoltz, you always get caught up in his 
masterful performances in the playoffs, especially in 91, where you just think about the duel with Jack Morris and uh, him growing up with Jack Morris, I think is, is pitching idol, at least one of them. It's pretty amazing the way the baseball kind of comes full circle like that. And those paths continue to cross year after year after year. But John Smoltz wrote himself a pretty good story as an Atlanta Brave. And while it couldn't be his hometown team, I think he'd be pretty happy with the way it all turned out. Uh, I totally agree. And that game meant a lot to John pitching against his childhood idol. And he matched him pitch for pitch. I mean, you tip your hat to Jack Morris. What a game he pitched. And we're saying, boy, if we could just score one run for John – I don't think they're going to touch him. Uh, he was that good that night up in Minnesota. Yeah, it was a tremendous, tremendous postseason, tremendous series. And for John Smoltz, just getting going, I think, from him becoming one of the best postseason pitchers we've ever seen. And, of course, he, like yourself, like Fred McGriff, all members of the 1995 World Series champion Braves. Before I let you get out of here, uh, this is 25 years, the anniversary since the 95 World Series win. What do you reflect upon 25 years after reaching the pinnacle, reaching the ultimate goal you guys had set out for in the 90s as you began having that success and finally capped it off against Cleveland in 95? Well, it was a relief, to be honest with you. No one expected 91. And I remember Jim Cott telling me, you know, enjoy this moment. Jim Cott, I think, is known for the pitcher who first went to the World Series. I forget what his age was, 19, 20, 21 and had the longest drought to get back to the next World Series. So he always told me in 91, enjoy this. You'll never know when you get back. So after that series, Grant, I'm thinking, you know, this this could be it. You know, we're not going to surprise anybody next year and here on out because we just went to the World Series. Now all of a sudden the target, the bullseye becomes on your back. You're not going to fool anybody or slip by anybody. You're going to have to earn it. And to think we'd get there the next year and then pick up McGriff and just there was a couple of balls in Philadelphia inches either way, and we're back again there. But 95, 96, and then 99. To think someone would tell you in 1990 you're going to go to five World Series in this decade would blow your mind. You, you would tell the guy, you know, you, you need to have your head checked because there's no possible way that's going to happen. <laughs> and it did. But I think by the time we got to 94, especially what was happening in football with the Buffalo Bills, and yeah. they're trying to get that Super Bowl under their belt, I think, you know, the guys really had a different type of feeling like we got to win one here sooner or later. Not that you can just will yourself to do it, and especially when you're looking across the field at that Cleveland Indian team who might have talent man for man had the best talent we played of all the teams. Yeah, it's crazy to look back on that and think, well, the Cleveland Indians might have been the most heavily favored opponent that the Braves faced in any of their World Series, at least to that point, and that's the team that the Braves triumph with and of course, Tom Glavin winning series MVP honors, the big home run from David Justice. Great to see a lot of the guys that were around in 91, yourself included, all get to enjoy by the time you guys uh, did win that World Series and something that I'm sure Braves fans will cherish. And as they look forward to another one, that 95 series is going to be one that's fun to revisit year after year. So, Mark, I really appreciate your time as always. Look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon. And hopefully you and I will be sitting on the same set talking about the Braves on a pregame show in the not-too-distant future. At least that's my hope. Look forward to it, Grant. Appreciate it, and it was good talking some baseball with you. So this was also a big week across Major League Baseball as we got the long-awaited word on what exactly the sanctions were going to be for the Boston Red Sox, who were being investigated by Major League Baseball for their alleged use of electronic sign stealing and the like. And of course, there were some common threads here because it wasn't just that the Red Sox were out on an island doing it by themselves. Of course, they won the World Series 
right after the Houston Astros had won the World Series, and the commonality there would be their manager, Alex Cora, who had been the bench coach with the Houston Astros. And of course, we already know his name has been pretty much put at the center of all of this. And we're going to dissect the sanctions and discuss what they were and perhaps what they weren't, more importantly, and what people might have liked to have seen. But either way, we got a lot to dive into, and I want to welcome Bill Rowland into the show. As always, Bill, hope you've been doing well, and we've been waiting and waiting and discussing this for what feels like an eternity, but now we finally have at least some kind of, I don't want to say closure, but at least we got some kind of word on what exactly it is the Boston Red Sox did, or more importantly, perhaps what they didn't do that didn't get them in as much trouble as Houston. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Grant. Always look forward to uh, for doing the show with you. And yeah, I think it's pretty obvious for anybody who's been kind of following both Houston and Boston throughout this, as far as what the punishment ended up coming down. Uh, Major League Baseball basically came out and and said the Red Sox, you know, did not rise to the same level as Houston as far as what they were doing. So that's good news, I guess, if you're a Red Sox fans, and maybe bad news if you're uh, a fan of other teams around the league that were hoping that Houston and Boston would both get slammed for this, but. Red Sox kind of get away a little bit unscathed in all of this. And, you know, even at some points, Major League Baseball kind of said, hey, you know what? You were doing the same thing that a lot of other teams were doing. You just got caught doing it. Yeah, it does seem like there was a little bit of the all through the game. And we'll get into this, I guess, at some point. But all through the game, there is the use, I think, of the video technology that we have. And it'd be foolish to think that there's not. It's the real time usage of the technology that is available and in and around the clubhouse and of course in every major league baseball stadium that was the question and that was where the, i guess the ethical component came into this and of course for the houston astros it was a lot more elaborate because they had a real-time sign stealing scheme set up that also included a very noticeable component that the boston red sox didn't have and that was banging on trash cans and alerting hitters in real time to what exactly the pitch was going to be or what it was not going to be more importantly and it just seems like For the Red Sox, I just had a hard time accepting Major League Baseball's discovery at face value. And I guess it was because of the manner in which the Houston Astros were disciplined and the manner in which these reports have been done, which granted the immunity to the players to get them involved in it. But when I looked at this at face value, of course, we knew Alex Cora, who was dismissed as Red Sox manager, was not going to be managing in 2020. And of course, now we have no baseball. So there's that he did officially receive his one-year suspension. So he will not be managing in 2020 when and if teams do take the field again. And that was the long and short of Alex Cora's discipline in all of this. And that, A, number one, surprised me because I thought he was going to get a much harsher or more stringent punishment for his involvement in not one but two different places. Major League Baseball's report seemed to sing a different tune about Cora not really being as involved in this and uh, Bill, right off the top, I mean, you got a video replay official from the team for the Red Sox by the name of J.T. Watkins, who was, seems to have been punished more than Alex Cora was, and I just have a hard time accepting that at face value. Yeah, the weird thing about that, too, Grant, is the Red Sox have come out and said the only reason that they parted ways with Cora was because of what was going on in Houston yeah. in 2017, and, and it had nothing to do with what the Red Sox were doing in 2018, and I also saw them... Uh, kind of come back around and say, hey, look, our manager uh, coming up this season is an interim manager, leaving the door open for Cora to return in 2021, which I never would have thought that that would be on the table. But I guess now with the way that Major League Baseball has come out and punished the Red Sox or not punished as the case may be as harshly as they could have, 
I will now be stunned if Cora isn't the manager in 2021 in Boston, the way things are laying around. And if I'm Ron Renneke, I'm looking around going, well, hold on a second. Even if it's a short season, what if I what if I do well with this team mm-hmm. in 2020? I, I'm just not going to be here next year. It's a very, very odd situation all the way around up there in Boston. Yeah, it really is. And they did remove the interim tag from Ron Renneke's official title. So he is the manager of the Boston Red Sox. Of course, he has no team to manage right now because we have no baseball right now. And that in and of itself, that could not have been expected. Nobody knew there was going to be a pandemic that was going to have America and the world really altering its everyday life and putting sports really on the back burner as far as you know the overall focus. But when you do look at the business of baseball aspect of this and you do think about what all of this meant from Houston all the way to Boston to the integrity of the game and beyond those two cities, because I don't think that this is just isolated incidents of no one else has ever used technology to gain an unfair advantage. And I don't think that this is only stuck in the era that we're in right now. I mean, there are stories, urban legends or otherwise, that go way, way back as far as using some kind of aid in order to steal signs. And I don't mind the gamesmanship of cracking the code inside the game. I don't mind that teams spend a lot of time perhaps reviewing the video to prepare for series to try to gain whatever advantage they can in cracking those codes by watching other games. It's the, once you get out on the field, I think that that is against the spirit of competition. If you're simply just stealing something from people and using technology to do it and not using the means of, hey, I've just figured out what this guy does, what they do, what their tendency is, and what their tell is. Because to me, that's more or less a game of poker at that point. Oh, no question. And and you see all the time, and and we saw it here in, in Washington with Steven Strasburg uh, early in his career, and actually even the last couple of years, where watching on video and teams do their own video scouting of their own players, they figured out a tell when, when Strauss was either going to throw a fastball or an off-speed pitch, the way he held the glove or whatever he was doing. That type of stuff goes on all the time across Major League Baseball. So doing the signs when there's a runner on second and get an indicator, whatever it is, during the team meeting before a series or whatever it is, I'm okay with that. I'm with you. It's when you're sitting there in the top of the second inning, or I guess it would be bottom of the second inning because the home team's the ones that are doing it, and being able to see that sequence and then run down and tell the guys, hey, yeah. by the way, next time there's a runner on, here's what's going on. And I guess that's what happened here with JT Watkins is he would give them the series of signs ahead of, you know, in pregame or before the series or whatever when they have their meeting and then would be watching it realize it was not the same that they had, you know, whoever the opponent was had changed their signs and then would have to decide whether he was going to, you know, contact the bench and let those guys know, Hey, by the way, it's not the the third indicator. It's the second now this time around or whatever it may be. That was what he was accused of doing. Major league baseball and, and Rob Manford basically said, Hey, if he waited till after the game and then went down and said, by the way, guys, they've changed everything. Nothing illegal about it. It was when he did it in game and I'm with you that's where you really if if a guy's on second he's smart enough to figure it out on his own and comes back to the dugout mm-hmm. great but you shouldn't be able to to review the tape as it were over and over again to decipher the sign and then go down and tell those guys in the in the fifth sixth seventh inning right and I feel like a lot of this again and this is something we touched on way back when we were talking about the Astros and not to just belabor the point but once you introduce technology into the game in the form of video replay and put the means for teams to really look into and study film in a way that they never had been able to, 
prior to that in terms of each and every game. Not that there aren't entire departments that are working through that video and finding all the things they can, both for their team and for the teams they're playing. But I guess as I look at it, it was a slippery slope that was created back then. And as discussed by us and and numerous other places, this was essentially giving teams an open book test and then being upset that they were using the open book to come to their answers in a lot of places. So uh, to me, that was a little bit strange. But uh, I want to go back to this because this is really what I wanted to flesh out and what I'm having a hard time kind of accepting again from this report is that Rob Manfred's conclusion that Cora was somehow unaware of his video operator's wrongdoing in all of this and treating him, in a sense, like a rogue agent of some sort. And the fact that Cora's involvement was so just central to what the Astros were doing, I just can't think that that guy says, okay, we won the World Series, we have all this success, we've been doing all these things, now I get a job managing a brand new team, and I'm going to abandon all of that, but by coincidence, my video replay operator is going to be heavily involved in giving my players some kind of advantage throughout the game. I just cannot buy that. I cannot accept that. It just does not add up. Or as folks like to say, I don't think that passes the smell test. Yeah, I'm with you. If you connect the dots, you would think that Cora would be at least aware right. of Watkins doing what he was doing. And in the in the report, they said it wasn't happening every series, every week. It was sporadic, as they said uh, in the memo. Um, Manford also, and this may be where Red Sox players figured out what was going on with Houston and decided that they were going to you know, kind of circle the wagons because you don't see in this report a lot of the players they interviewed claimed that they had no idea that Watkins was doing this anyway and never even got the in-game reports from him. So they could kind of, you know, play off and say, hey, look, we won because we were good. Not that we were getting any kind of help from our video replay guy. And I think it was 30 of the 44 that they interviewed said that they had no knowledge of it whatsoever. Now, again, you can sit there and say, how is that possible? But if you saw what happened with Houston when those guys came out and said, yeah, we were doing it and how slammed they got, Uh, I'm not sure that maybe some of these Red Sox players didn't kind of figure out that was going on. Now, maybe these interviews took place before all that came out. But if I'm a if I'm one of the members of that Red Sox team and I had knowledge and I saw what happened, I might be be one to say, hey, yeah, you know what? I never really saw or heard anything going on just to keep myself from getting killed in the press. Yeah, and they are going to get raked over hot coals, but it's going to pale in comparison, I think, to what's going on with the Houston Astros or what did go on with Houston. And if anything, you know, I wouldn't say this was a matter of convenience for Major League Baseball, but in the wake of one of the biggest scandals they've had in the game in quite some time, at least since the steroid era, there is something bigger in the news that is able to come in and kind of dwarf that in terms of what the overall focus of every person I think is right now. It's not hey, what was going on in Major League Baseball in 2017? It's more or less, hey, how do we navigate these times we're in right now and move forward and get sports back? So I'm not going to say that was a matter of convenience because there's nothing convenient about what's happening to us, but for Major League Baseball, they were really able to get out from under a microscope, and I know that they wanted to have this all wrapped up before they came back to play again for sure. And interestingly enough, and there's, I don't think, and you've been in media for a long time as well, I don't think it's a mistake that all this Red Sox stuff came out right on the cusp of the NFL draft happening so they could also be buried in the news cycle because PR firms and the PR for Major League Baseball, I'm sure, has paid an awful lot of money to try to mitigate damage where possible, and they sure dodged a couple of bullets by kind of sliding this story in there where it becomes more back page than front page. 
Yeah, and, and if you think about the baseball teams returning, as they're talking about, without uh, fans in the stands, how easily does that allow Houston to kind of, you know, gently get back into playing baseball when you're not going to be on the road and having fans screaming at you or banging trash cans or whistling or whatever it may be? They're going to be able to just go and play baseball. And and before all this went down with, with the, you know, COVID-19, the coronavirus, whatever you want to call it, Doing this show, you and I talked about yeah. how it was it was bad in spring training. Mm-hmm. Imagine how much worse it would be when the regular game started for the Astros and their players. And now if it does start, it's not going to be in front of fans, which stinks. I'm sure all those Houston players would much rather be playing in front of packed stadiums and getting harassed than doing what they may have to do and playing in front of, of no fans at all. But it certainly does let them kind of slide in the back door as far as this is going to be forgotten because of the bigger picture of what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, and it's going to be more of a celebration of the sport coming back and sports in general than it's going to be any kind of indictment again or continued consternation, if you will, or or continued criticism for what they did. They're not going to face all of that as much as they would have had things just kind of gone along in their natural course. Now, eventually it was going to die down. People were going to move past it, get over it, or simply just stay mad about it, but just more or less stop talking about it, which was, I think, what a lot of folks would have liked anyway, including at times myself, because it's not the most fun topic in the world to talk about, but it had not run its course yet. I don't know that it has completely escaped the focus that it will get when Major League Baseball does resume, but I've got to imagine that at this point, it's not really going to be as focused upon as it will be in the overall sport of just getting back to business in general. So, you know, that's kind of a big picture look at all of that. But to go back to Alex Cora one more time, because again, you know, not only am I having a hard time imagining that he had nothing to do with any of the stuff that went on in Boston, but that's pretty much what Commissioner Rob Manfred's report did say. This suspension for him is for things he did in Houston, not things that he did in Boston, to make that clear. The Red Sox are going to lose a draft pick. They're not going to lose as many as the Astros. They also did not face a fine, which, again, $5 million for a Major League Baseball club one time is pretty much nothing. And as you look at the two, the Astros certainly got punished in a stiffer manner than the Red Sox did. But, Bill, we spent a lot of time talking about the Houston Astros, and we don't have to revisit that all right now. But I felt that the Astros certainly didn't get hit with the sanctions that they deserved. And I think that by proxy, that made the Red Sox... I think the beneficiaries of the precedent that was set by Rob Manfred the first time around. What do you make of that? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that there's no way in, in reading this memo again, if, if we yeah. go with what major league baseball said, what went on and there's no evidence that the Red Sox were again, using a trash can or real right. time, you know, pitch by pitch. So their level of punishment could not rise to Houston's, but certainly um, because Houston's was, considered light by many people in, in what went on. Um, the Red Sox are going to look the same way. I mean, they their video guy is uh, suspended for a year, and he can't return to the video room in 2021. I don't know if that means he can in 2022. I imagine yes, he's going to be out there looking for another job at some point. I can't imagine the Red Sox will keep him within the organization, but maybe because – Maybe, you know, he can say, hey, I I didn't know that this was illegal to do it during the game. You guys told me we could tape it and just, you know, figure out the signs. I didn't know I couldn't do it in game. I mean, that's the excuse. If I'm trying to keep my job that I'm going to go with. But um, the second round draft pick, uh, again, you you can get a quality player. I mean, you're talking about one of the probably, you know, 35 to 40 best players out there available to draft. And 
you know, I know the argument has been made in Boston that this year, because in 2020, there's only going to be five rounds that all of a sudden you're really in trouble losing a draft pick because it's not 40 rounds where you can go, well, we'll still get a bunch of guys. Um, and I know in some cases that falls on deaf ears because people say, well, so what? You're just going to be able to, you know, sign free agents so it doesn't matter. But as far as the punishment for the Sox go, yeah, I mean, you can make the argument, okay, fine them a million dollars. But what does that really do yeah. other than yeah. it goes to charity? I don't know. I don't know what level of punishment that you could levy out to to the Red Sox that people are going to go, that's it, you got it right. And then it would pale in comparison as far as the punishment that Houston got as far as the equity side of things, where if you think that the Red Sox got punished fairly, that means that they were punished way more harshly compared to what they did to what Houston got. Right, and we've created a sliding scale that wasn't really, I think, appropriate in the eyes of a lot of people for the punishment matching the crime. Also, and I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist here, but again, the Cora revelation that he had nothing to do with anything when it came to the replay transgressions of the Red Sox. Hard for me to buy that. And again, I don't think that people were sitting around waiting to see when the replay operator was going to face the wrath of Major League Baseball because the majority of people, including Red Sox fans, have no idea who JT Watkins is for the right. most part. Right. I mean, they're obviously fans that are really in tune would know, but it's hard to know who these guys are in a lot of cases because they're more or less a behind-the-scenes person, and that's the nature of their job. They're not meant to be a central focus of an investigation or really anything else that's going on in the day-to-day -day when it comes to the public side of things. They have a job to do behind the scenes to keep something running smoothly and to help the club out in a particular manner. But for Watkins, when you see articles, like I was looking at the New York Post, I know Joel Sherman, to a point that you brought up earlier, I think John Heyman as well, and some others theorized, as you did, and, and as you brought forth, that, hey, Ron Renneke's stay in Boston may be very short, and the Red Sox loved Alex Cora. Clearly, they loved winning the World Series, I'm sure, so perhaps he'll be back sooner than later. That, in and of itself, is problematic to me and, and would be, in some ways, kind of a tone-deaf move by the club, but I don't make those decisions, so it is what it is. But I just don't feel like, when it comes down to it, that the person that is on the receiving end of all of this, who, by the way, according to this memo, vehemently denies any involvement with this, the replay operator, J.T. Watkins, that really is not the pound of flesh I think most people were looking for here. And going back to Houston, and this is, again, the whole picture that we're talking about, the fact that the player involvement in this really didn't yield any punishments, suspensions, or anything that set that precedent, to keep guys from doing this and, and created a deterrent. It's just hard to stomach that when you look at the whole thing. I didn't expect a bunch of player suspensions out of Boston after they were none from Houston, but I guess what I'm saying is a couple of managers get suspended, a GM gets suspended, all of these guys have stepped away or lost their jobs, however you want to look at it, and then a replay operator is the fourth man here that's really being named, or the fifth, whatever it is. You can pretty much count them on one hand, the guys that got named in this, but this was so much bigger than the handful of guys that received suspensions and or lost their jobs if you want to throw Carlos Beltran into the mix as well. Yeah, no question. And Renicky, as you pointed out, and I hadn't seen that report, they did take the interim tag off of him, but it's a one-year deal. Right. So right. let's be honest. I mean, they're setting it up that if the Red Sox, who I think they were going to struggle this year anyway with the, you know, sale being out for the season and some other pitching woes that they have. I, I figured they'd struggle to be around a 500 ball club anyway. So now it's a built in reason. 
if they don't make the playoffs, if they're 500 or sub 500, if they struggle in this shortened season, no matter how many games they eventually end up playing, easy to let him go. You're not firing him. You're just not renewing his contract. It was a one-year deal, and all of a sudden, Alex Cora is back. We talked about it in Houston. How many years left does Dusty Baker at 70 years old have, yeah. you know, trying to rehab their uh, ball club and their reputation? He may only do 2020, 2021, decide that he's had enough, and all of a sudden, A.J. Hinch is back uh, as the manager down there in Houston. I, I Initially, when this all came out, Grant, I thought there was no way that Hinch or Cora would ever be back on the bench in Major League Baseball, at least not for the next five years, because I thought they'd be so soured. Now, I'll be stunned if Cora and Hinch aren't both back managing, I, I would think, Hinch 2023 at the latest. And as I said earlier, I think Cora's back on the bench next year. Shouldn't be, but I wouldn't be surprised if he is. And, you know, the thing about that is it's just the reality of the situation because neither of them were really taken completely off the table. There's no disincentive for clubs to at some point, look into bringing them in. And they can do the tour, the I'm sorry tour, the I've changed my ways tour, whatever you want to call it, or the I made a mistake tour, whatever that is. And there'll be a news cycle for it, and then people will move past it and forget it. And I'm not suggesting that we should just all die on these hills nonstop and never let people have second chances. But the real thing to me is just looking at overall the handling of Major League Baseball in this. I mean, if I were giving them a letter grade, it would not be a good one. And I don't even I honestly think it would be passing, to be quite candid, because this just, to me, and when you look at the player ramifications of this, the player reactions to this on the other teams, pretty united, I would say, in their disdain for what Houston did when it came to the trash can banging and whatnot. And if the Red Sox didn't do that, that's fine. But I just have a hard time looking at the Red Sox punishment and specifically none of it being levied towards Alex Cora and really seeing this as something that came anywhere close to hitting the mark. And again, I'm not advocating for just throwing sanctions out there just for the sake of doing it, but I just think that Major League Baseball did not do itself any favors in the way that it handled this. And I'll be interested to see when the next technological scandal comes along because I kind of expect there to be one at this point just based on how these two clubs were handled. Well, yeah, especially when Major League Baseball, as as we've noted a couple times, has basically come out and said, look, there's nothing illegal about using your video replay to uh, steal signs. Stealing signs is not illegal in baseball. You just can't do it in real time. So they've opened it up. I mean, all 30 ball clubs have known this, that, hey, go ahead and use it. You just can't then turn around and tell the dugout, tell the bullpen, whoever it is. You cannot tell them in real yeah. time during the yeah. game. So, yeah. It's not going away. It's still going to be there, and there will be teams that will still try to flex and bend the rule and figure out if there's a way around what they're doing. I'm not sure you're going to see it as blatant as what Houston was doing again because everybody's going to be on the lookout for that, but there will be something else that can come along um, that teams will figure out how to, again, bend and manipulate these rules to their favor. Yeah, man, it's what people do in general, I think. You just got to get better at hiding it, and that may be the ultimate That's right. uh, thing that comes out of this, the biggest takeaway from all of it. But the Boston Red Sox did receive their punishment. Uh, I'm sure that this will be chewed on in the news cycle for a little while, might come back up again a time or three you know, during the season, and as the season leads up to getting started, hopefully uh, sooner than later, hopefully we have a season to be talking about this year. But otherwise, I think that... In a lot of ways, from a PR standpoint, the fact that there were much bigger fish to fry in the public scope of things 
has allowed Major League Baseball to perhaps slide a little bit on the focus being on them for how poorly this was handled. And again, that's just a PR statement, not a what's important and priorities in life statement because there are much more important things than organized sports right now, professional sports, as we all try to, you know, live healthy lives at this point. But it just seems to be one of those things that was not handled in the manner that it should have been. I wish it had never happened. The reality that it did. I just don't know that Major League Baseball did enough to really set in stone going forward enough of a disincentive for folks not to try this again. And I hope they don't, but I can't be shocked if we're going to be talking about this at some point, especially if some of the people who might have been more involved with this are kind of skating free on it because they were never really punished to begin with. That's a great point. It's a great point. Well, that is what was going on in Major League Baseball news, the big Major League Baseball news this week. And hopefully we'll be able to stick a pin in that discussion and maybe we'll just leave that pin in there. I don't know about you, Bill, but I've talked enough about <laughs> technology and sign stealing in the last few months to last me the rest of my life. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I just like for them. What I'd like for us to be talking about next week, although I don't know that it'll happen that quick, is that they've decided that they're going to play baseball, whether it's in Arizona, Texas, and Florida, or whether it's just Florida and Arizona or just Arizona. I just want them to kind of say, hey, guess what? June 1st, we're all getting back together, and we're going to start July 1st, so baseball's back. But we'll see. It seems like getting like it's getting closer, but, I mean, stuff changes so rapidly day to day, you just don't know. Well, we'll find out. Hopefully they make the best decision for the health of all the folks involved, and I mean that from not just the field, the front office, but also – the fans and folks that love the game of baseball as well, they would love to have it back in their lives. And I think they'd like to be able to go sit in a Major League Baseball stadium again if they so choose and enjoy that. So hopefully we're trending in that direction. And uh, hopefully all of you are out there staying safe and doing the things you need to do as we try to combat the spread of the virus and all the stuff that goes with that. So anyway, Bill, I appreciate your time as always. Look forward to chatting with you next week about whatever else might be going on in Major League Baseball. Absolutely, Grant. Always appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. All right, so that'll do it for this episode of From the Diamond. My thanks, as always, to Bill Rowland for jumping on, and my thanks to Mark Lemke of the Braves Radio Network for checking in, talking about those Braves trades with me as well. Make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. Be sure to tell a friend as well. On social media, find the show on Twitter at From the Diamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley. Bill Rowland is at Bill Rowland. And on Instagram, at From the Diamond, at Grant McCauley as well. If you want to follow me, I'd appreciate that. And you can find everything, including every episode of the show and so much more, at FromTheDiamond.com. So that'll do it for this week's show. Hope you and yours are staying safe out there. And thank you for taking some of your time to listen to From the Diamond. As always, we will catch you next week for more Braves and baseball talk. Until then, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.